But we're in Psalm 11 tonight with a title of Faith in the Lord's Righteousness. Uh, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. And before we dig into it, uh, this is really an, it's an answer of faith to the advice of fear. If someone would be giving you advice to be afraid and to worry, um, the counter of that is trust, trusting the Lord. Um, the psalm records well-intentioned but faithless advice from some of David's friends when he was a fugitive from King Saul, when he was running from the king, probably after he threw the first spear at David, after he threw the second spear at David, and, uh, and after Jonathan did the special signal with the arrow uh, where David ran. Um, but, you know, you have these friends telling him to flee like a bird to the hills, we'll see. And, uh, and David lifts his eyes to the Lord and, and finds faith there. Uh, he knew that that was a place to stand in times of trial, in times of worry, is a radical trust in God. Um, you know, I think a good word for us in this day and age, because we like any day and age, I suppose, can be can, we become addicted to fear. Uh, it can actually be something that we almost find comfort in because then that keeps us back. That keeps us from moving forward. And if I'm afraid, then, you know, then I don't have to be stretched. You know, And actually, that's, that's worse than just going ahead and moving forward in what the Lord would have for us. But, uh, and then the counter, in, a, in an almost unintentional way, there's, almost a, uh, a bent in our flesh towards fear as well. And um, part of our fallen flesh is gravitating towards fear. It's interesting that you could have 10 good reports where we're rejoicing, and then you have one fearful report come in, and it can counter all the good that just took place. Have you ever seen that in your own life? You got 10 things to rejoice in, 10 things that are awesome, and, and then one naysayer or one negative or one thing that, that causes us to tremble, and we just completely lose sight. You know, it's, it's the picture of fog that, that blurs out, you know, clarity. And, uh, and fear can be that, that, uh, that fog. We can look back in the time of Moses and when he sent the 12 spies out into the promised land to bring back the report, you know, what, what way should we go in to take these guys out? And, you know, what, what, are we, what are we going into? What is this land flowing with milk and honey? And, and you've got two guys, Joshua and Caleb, who bring back a, a good report. And the other 10, you know, say, we're like grasshoppers in the eyes of these giants. They're going to just completely wipe us out. We have no chance. Uh, even though Joshua and Caleb say, we can do it. With the Lord, we can do it. He's been so faithful in our past. We've got to trust him now. And look at this giant cluster of grapes right here that it's taken two men with a pole between them to carry out. This is the fruit of this area. And, uh, and just the report of those other guys completely obliterated the good report from Joshua and Caleb. And was it costly? It was costly. It was then that, the children of Israel went into their 40 years of wilderness wandering where everybody under the, uh, above the age of 20 
uh, died in the wilderness because they didn't trust the Lord. And so, you know, this is a good psalm for us to read uh, in, in the day we live in, in the sense that we have information at our fingertips, you know, we've got every news source available on our phones and on our tablets and on the radio and on our TV, and we can begin to worry, you know, we can see reports of ISIS and we can begin to be afraid, you know, uh, we actually had that happen here where we were here to pray for Iraq and for the unreached people of Iraq, and you remember there was someone here that spoke a prophecy that we determined wasn't prophecy, uh, and it was actually just a word of fear over our body that the ISIS was going to come and take over America in one day, and and uh, you know no real way to test that actually the way that it was spoken forth. But anyways, what it did was it took us from a place of Lord, we cry out for the unreached people groups. We pray you would even save ISIS. Lord God, move and save the Saul of Tarsus in ISIS. And then, you know, the fear came and it just caused us to lose boldness in the direction that we are praying. And so um, we want to uh, we want to learn from the psalmist here, as he says in verse 1, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? So David is living the life of a fugitive. If you ever watched Prison Break or you ever watched, you know, Harrison Ford and Fugitive with Tommy Lee Jones back in the day, you know, that was David in his life of running from Saul, hunting him. David would actually say, you're hunting me like a, like a dead dog. You know, what are you doing? Uh, just pursued, I think, was it 17 years or something like that, that he was pursued by a king, you know, who used to be his friend. Um, and the advice from David's friends appeared to say, Flee as game when it's hunted by prey. In a sense, you know, maybe more applicable here would, you know, flee like an elk, you know, when the hunter uh, is on its tail or the deer, you know, or the partridge as we're hunting it. And actually, 1 Samuel 26, 20, uh, David confronts uh, Saul by sneaking into his camp in the night and stealing his spear and his water jug just to show I went right up to your head and I could have killed you if I wanted to. I'm not your enemy. I'm not here to kill you. And then he rebukes all the guards around Saul. You guys, his blood should be on your head because you guys weren't watching. I'm not an enemy, but he says at the end of verse 20, the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. You know, I'm just a flea. I'm a nobody. What are you hunting for me? And, and you know, I, I'm like that partridge in the mountains uh, uh, hiding from you here. Uh, but here in verse 1, David actually reacts in rage at the advice of his friends to be afraid and to run away. Um, and that's how we should react when our friends speak an ill-fit word into our life, something that is not boldness in the Lord, something that is not courage in the Lord, something that is not loving our enemies and actively pursuing the blessing and the happiness of those that curse us, as Jesus says. Uh, when there's a counsel of, of runaway, um, man, there should be this, this outrage. How can you say to me, run away? Because that takes the position of trusting in the Lord. In verses 2 and 3 here, David remembers the words of fear that came out of the mouths of his friends. Verse 2, it says, For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, 
that they may shoot secretly or shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. In modern day vernacular, it'd be saying, David, there's a loaded gun, locked, cocked, and ready to shoot at your head. You've got to run. You've got to flee. You've got to get out of here. It's ready to fire. In another psalm, he writes that the enemy sharpens their tongues like a sword and bends their bows to shoot their arrows. Then it says, bitter words. And so we kind of get a little bit of insight into what this, uh, what the arrow is, what the piercing, painful thing is. It, it's bitter words. And this is very right on where we're at in our church on Sunday mornings going through James because the last two weeks that we've been in James, um, we see, you know, where do wars and fights come from among you? It comes from your desires for pleasure that war within your members. Uh, but then as you get deeper and deeper and deeper into what this pleasure is in our members, it's, it's envious, it's self-seeking, it's bitter envy, which, which is bitter bitterness, literally translated bitter bitterness. And, and then it goes deeper into the tongue uh, as James spends a lot of time talking about our tongue and what words of bitterness are. They are, it's like a stream that comes out of our heart of bitterness or Mara in the Old Testament, the bitter waters that are poison. And what an interesting thing for us tonight to just be reminded after Sunday's message that just honed in on James 4, 11, and 12, the sin of slander. Has anybody else been mindful of that this week as we've been going throughout our week and just catching your mind wanting to slander somebody. I've just had so many people telling me, man, it's just been on my heart. It's been on my mind. I've just, I've been breathing through my mouth or through my nose, sorry, so that I'm not slandering, you know. I've had people tell me to breathe through my, actually that was during church on Sunday. Someone said, breathe through your nose so you don't slander anyone anymore while you're preaching. Um, but so David talks about these sh- secret shooting at the upright in heart. And, and then in that other psalm, bitter words can be what that is. You know, we don't really have anyone, you know, going after us. Some people do, but not necessarily here. We should pray for you if you do. But but how it's bitter words, you know. Just, you know, we're kind of family here. <laughs> uh, you know, that's happening right now against our church. I don't know if you know that or not. Just no names or anything like that. But we're in a place where people are act- actively pursuing you might get a call so that they can speak words of bitterness into your life against the church against the leadership here and pull you away from the church that's that's where we're at in our season as a church right now and uh you know when people are talking about you that's actually good because it means something's happening here (laughs) and uh and we all look at the word and we say it's something good and the enemy doesn't like it and if you read today's psalm in the eat this book psalm uh it talks about that uh, and so just, you know, a little bit of a warning as a shepherd, you know, just love the people if they call you, but just say, I don't, I don't want to talk about this. this is slander against the church. You can talk to the leadership or if you want to bring me in with the leadership, um, they can discuss it with you or something like that. But um, it's at the point where it's wolves coming to attack sheep. And so uh, you'll know who it is when they call you and if they email you and you can just say, ah, just not interested in talking, just worshiping Jesus, you know, come on down to Calvary Chapel and worship Jesus and pursue the kingdom of God with us. But uh, in all of that, I'm not trying to put fear into your heart. Don't flee like a partridge, (laughs) nothing like that. 
Uh, David's friends here appear to be manipulating him out of fear and certainly not afraid. We see the Lord's hand in what he's doing in this church right now. And what can we say but God, but God for his glory, you know, um, he's transforming lives here by his spirit. And it's an exciting thing to watch. I look around the room and I'm seeing lives that are being transformed, pulled out of the, uh, you know, false religions, pulled out of lives of addiction, pulled out of lives of immorality, um, pulled out of lives of religiosity and pulled out of the miry clay set our feet on the rock, putting a new song in our heart that many will hear, many will see, and many will be astounded at the Lord. Um, the the enemy, or I'm sorry, these are David's friends still in verse three that are talking about, you got to run, man. You got to get out of here. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So meant to be a warning by David's friends, but the idea here is that the very foundation of Saul's government is destroyed. You know, God has ripped the kingdom from Saul and he's given it to David actually. But what can someone righteous do except for just flee? This is an absolutely corrupt government. And when David hears these words uh, from his friends, perhaps David, David thought there was something to them um, and uh, tempted to go that route. But his heart told him he needed to heed the advice, uh, excuse me, to heed this advice would be compromise. And just a good word for us, you know, as we are rounding the final term of, of our president, you know, and we pray for him and we just pray for his salvation and we long for his heart to be one to the Lord. Um, and yet we just see, you know, he's a fallen man. And when fallen men lead, we go in directions of the fall, you know. Uh, and, and as we come towards the next election, you know, that isn't super hopeful either. You know, uh, we got to keep our eyes on who our real king is and just not be afraid. Even if the foundation of our government crumbles, the righteous are able to stand. In fact, if you look at history past, when the foundations of the righteous of the governments crumble, God's in that. He's the one that moves borders of nations and sets up kings and takes down kings and and he purifies the church in those times. And uh, so we can't heed the advice of the friends here, even if the foundation of our government seems to be being destroyed. Charles Spurgeon writes, he will use such plausible logic. This is the, the friend trying to convince us to tremble and fear and run away. He will use such plausible logic that unless we once for all assert our immovable trust in Jehovah he will make us like the timid bird which flies to the mountain whenever danger presents itself. So I like that, that we need to assert our immovable trust in Jehovah. Times of fasting do that, don't they? Because you come to a place where you're like, I got nothing, you know, like I am going to die right now. But, but I trust you, Lord. I, I rely upon you and our, our faith and our trust is established and solidified. Matthew Henry writes from the 15th century, that which grieved David in this motion was not that to flee now would savor of cowardice and ill become a soldier, but that it would savor of unbelief and would ill become a saint who had so often said, in the Lord I put my trust. It's not a matter of us, you know, oh, I'm, I'm a coward and God's called me to be a soldier. No, it's more that 
uh, this would be unbelief. And God's called us to be saints, full of belief. Uh, In verse 4, we have the answer of faith now from David. The Lord is in his holy temple. Guys, this is like a breath of fresh air after what we just read. Oh, you know, it's bright light shining in the midst of fear and, and darkness. The Lord is in his holy temple. He lifts his eyes up to the Lord. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the son of men. David finds himself, as one man wrote, the shaking of a tree, they say, makes it take the deeper and faster root. So David's in the time of trial and testing, and it's causing his roots to go down deep. And in that, he gets his eyes on the Lord. Have you ever been in a time of trial, and have you ever said to your friends, hey, the Lord's still on the throne. God's still on the throne. Don't let that become Christian cliche, all right? Let that be the the Bible coming out. God is on his throne. He's ruling. He's reigning in his sovereign power. We need to focus on the Lord in the midst of stress, fear, anxiety. He is on his throne and he knows what's going on in the sons of men. This is so encouraging for three things. First of all, there's a God in heaven that God is ruling and reigning and he knows what's happening. He knows what's happening. And when you look in the book of Revelation, you have all these martyred saints from the tribulation underneath the altar crying out, how long, O Lord, till you rain down justice on what's going on down there. And the Lord says, I'm going to. I know what's going on down there. Uh, Psalm 73, 16. Um, Oh, you know what? This, (laughs) I was like, what one did I just add right before I came down here that's not on there? This is it. I thought it was out of Matthew. Okay, so we did an in-depth study of Psalm 73 like four weeks ago or five weeks ago or something. And you remember that David looks at the sinners and the wicked out there and it seems like they're prospering. Seems like they, they've got all the goods. Seems like they're, you know, living in the lap of luxury. And it's just for 16 verses here, it's really stressing him out. It's really frustrating him until he goes into the sanctuary of God. And so whenever you're at a place where you're going through a trial and it's almost too painful for you, it's, I just, it's almost too much for me. I just can't do this anymore. Go into the sanctuary of God. And it will give you perspective. And that's what David does here. He's, he's in the midst of fear, trembling, getting bad advice, bad counsel. And he's in the throne room of the Lord here. And, he's, and he gets clarity. He gets understanding. Um, Isaiah 66, 1. So just a, a grasping the greatness of God. So David sees that the Lord is on the throne. He's in heaven. He's ruling and reigning. Uh, and and the Lord says, yeah, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. You're going to build me a little dinky house, you know? Uh, where's the house you're going to build for me? I am God, the God of heaven. He's in his holy temple. As Matthew Henry says, that is in his church. And he breaks it down a little deeper to in each one of us as we're um, living temples. Uh, he's a God in covenant, in communion with his people through a mediator of which the temple was a type. So he's on his throne of glory, where he's transcending splendor and majesty far above that of any earthly prince or king or president. He's on his throne of government, where he gives laws, motions. He gives his aim to all creation. 
He's on his throne of judgment, as we saw in James chapter 4, verse 12 this week, that there is one judge. There is one judge, and he has the power to, to live and to cause death. Uh, that's our judge. And he's on his throne of grace so that people can come boldly uh, for times of mercy and grace. It says in our psalm tonight that his eyelids test. So he's on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. He knows what's going on in the hearts of men. And his eyelids test the sons of men. Uh, I like the literal definition here. His eyes have flashing rays and glances. Flashing rays and glances. He tests and he knows man's character. Revelation 1.14. So here, here's a, just a picture of the eyes as they're testing, you know. And we have Jesus in Revelation in his glory. Eyes like a flame of fire. Uh, providing warmth and also providing pure, purity. <laughs> um, by the way, guys, this is Jake and Heidi Marie here. Kind of new to the church in the last few weeks. And Cheyenne, who works down at Tasty Treat. And Brandon, good to have you guys. Trying to think, everyone's starting to get to know Colleen back there. Awesome. And Colleen. Col- <laughs> Colleen and Corrine back there. Awesome. Of course, there's Easy. What's up, brother? <laughs> um, everyone getting to know Josh over here? Josh Sadler? Awesome. Just introducing the family here. So we have Jesus in Revelation just with eyes like a flame of fire. Those are the eyelids that test. Uh, Psalm 33 18. Shut that in mind. The eye of the Lord is on those that fear him. Nate, read 2 Chronicles 16.9. Okay, so we've got these eyelids that test. These eyes of a flame of fire. Jesus' eyes in Revelation. Eyes that are on those that fear him. Eyes that go to and fro. I would even say throughout even the church. You know, who is loyal to me? I want to show myself strong on behalf of the one whose heart is loyal to me. And so... David answers in verses 4 and 5 by remembering what God sees. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And so in Genesis 22, we see that the Lord tests Abraham uh, to see if he really trusts the Lord. Because the Lord said, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Then they went through that really long period where they still didn't have a son. And so they made an Ishmael with Hagar. Uh, and that wasn't the promised son. And then finally Isaac comes. And then after this, this boy grows into a lad or, you know, a young teenager or something, he's told to go kill him on Mount Moriah. Take now your son, your only son whom you love, and go and offer him as a sacrifice to me on the place that I will show you. And so Abraham does. Total picture of Jesus. Uh, great Bible study there as you look at the picture of, of Isaac, the one and only son that is loved, taking the wood upon his back and going up to be sacrificed on the very mountain that Jesus would go and be killed on a couple thousand years later. But after this test, after you know Abraham's about to plunge the knife into Isaac, an angel says, stop, as Abraham had already said. Don't worry, the Lord will provide himself the lamb. Another prophecy there. But an angel says, stop, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So the Lord testing the righteous. I just wonder in what ways is the Lord testing you right now? Testing you to see, you know, he says that he tested Egypt in the wilderness, whether or not they would trust me, whether or not they would obey. 
Uh, and I just wonder what ways is the Lord refining you and testing you as, as the fire tests the gold and the silver? Uh, notice that the wicked, though, and the one who loves violence and destruction, wrong and plundering, my soul hates. In verse 6, David's going to remember the destiny of those wicked. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Does that bring to remembrance anything from the scriptures? Raining coals and fire and brimstone and a burning wind. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Just your minds all go there. Uh, tribulation period, Babylon falling, and you know uh, the, the end times as well. Um, God pouring out his judgment upon the wicked. Uh, Psalm 75, 8 speaks to this. Linda, do you want to read that? Speaking the wrath of the Lord poured out upon the wicked. And you read very similar language in the book of Revelation as a Christ-rejecting world is judged. Um, verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Here we have an attribute of God, righteousness, rightness, innocence. He is right. He is always right. He is righteous in his ways. He is righteous in his judgments. Uh, even in the times where the wicked have the fiery coal and the judgment poured out upon them, where we might go, ooh, seems a bit severe. In Revelation, when that is happening, the angels cry out, true and righteous are your judgments. This is right judging of the Lord. That's what we've been studying in, in James, is that the Lord is the only one who has the ability to judge. When we want to try to usurp his throne of judgment, we want to be the condemners out there. We don't know the whole story. We don't know the thoughts and intents of man's heart. He does. And so he's able to judge in such a way. Um, this is prophesied of Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man um, being uh, one of righteousness. Here's a psalm that prophesies of Jesus, Psalm 45, 7. So Jesus and the writer of Hebrews and I, I want to say Romans, but maybe not in Romans. Um, this is uh, referenced in these in Jesus's reasoning with the Pharisees, as well as uh, the Hebrew chapter one, um, because God calls someone God. Who is God calling God? The Son, the Son who is fully God, and He is anointed with the oil of gladness because the Son will go in obedience and fulfill the will of the Father, voluntarily submitting Himself to the the role of the Father, loving righteousness and hating wickedness. Uh, and so Jesus is righteous. His countenance beholds the upright. Or the, I like that upright can mean straight and level. Straight and level. Think of the bubble on a level. You know, it's like, no, I'm not going to be someone where, whoop, I go too far this way. Whoop, how fast does that bubble slide to the opposite, opposite end of the level, right? Or of the scale. Whoop, whoop, whoop. You know, no, I want to be plumb. I want to be level. Um. So his countenance, behold those that are straight and level. All, or the original manuscript could say that the upright behold his countenance. So either his countenance beholds the upright or, or the upright behold his countenance. Which is it? They're both good. <laughs> They're both good, right? Man, to be able to behold his beauty, as the psalmist says, the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple and then to have the lord look upon us uh, and behold 
us as a friend, as in relationship. Um, we know what Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. In fact, a desire to behold God is one of the greatest motivations of an upright heart. I just want to see you, Lord. I just want to know you. I just want to be in your presence face to face. That is heaven. That is paradise, being in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Guzik writes, all in all, when David considers the greatness of God, the care of God, and the vision of God, it all outweighs the danger that the friends are speaking into his life. For David, trusting God was the safest move of all. His friends may or may not have meant well, but David would not receive their advice of fear. Instead, he would answer in faith. Matthew Henry writes, in singing this psalm, interesting that Matthew Henry writes about singing it, you know, because it was, it was the hymn book back in the day. In singing this psalm, we must encourage and engage ourselves to trust in God at all times. We must depend upon him to protect our innocence and make us happy. Must dread his frowns as worse than death and desire his favor as better than life. In times of public fear, when the insults of the church's enemies are daring and threatening, it will be profitable to meditate on this psalm. And that last line is really good as we move to prayer uh, for the nation of Egypt. Because